In this episode of Startups with the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be answering marketing and growth questions. This is Startups with the Rest of Us, episode 393. Welcome to Startups with the Rest of Us, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. We're here to share our experiences up to avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's going on this week, Rob? You know, man, I uh, I appreciated that you and Xander kind of pulled a joke on me and put unemployed on my badge at Microcom. It was hilarious. I, everybody was commenting about it. It was it was super fun. And I think it, the the big question, I mean, people were asking me was like, how's how's unemployment or slash retirement, you know, treating you? And you know, now that I'm a couple weeks into it, it's everything you imagine it would be. Like it's in a good way. You know, I I haven't felt this relaxed and kind of focused almost. It, it sounds like an odd thing, but for me, it's like having the headspace to dive deep into topics that I just have the time to do. You know, it's the freedom to not need to generate a result next day or next week based on what I do today, but realizing that long-term, yeah, I'm probably going to do something again, something interesting, but to have the freedom to just kind of float from one thing to the next and and do it. I haven't felt like this since, I was trying to think it was before Hittail, which was like the 2010, 2011 timeframe. We had our second son and I spent about 10, 10 months. I've talked about this before. There's about 10 months there where I worked like 10 hours a week, you know, 10 to 15 hours a week. And it felt amazing. And it wasn't until I got, I was about four to six months into that before I really started getting bored and anxious and, and wanting to do the next thing. But that's kind of my first report, you know, of, of how it's going is I'm definitely not bored yet. And I will hit a time when I think I will get bored, but I'm certainly filling my days at this point. I mean, you know, one example of this man is we've just struggled uh, since we had a live-in nanny a year or two ago, and she was here for about six or eight months, and then her mom had a health issue, and she moved away. And ever since then, we've just struggled to have you know, stable childcare. And it's been a real problem because Sherry's trying to work. You know, I was going into the office a few days a week, and it was always a struggle. And today, Sherry's out of town uh, speaking at a conference, and one of our kids is sick. And uh, one of our seven-year-olds, and she is stayed here at the house, but it wasn't a big deal. You know, it's like, it doesn't, uh, obviously I'd prefer to during the day kind of do my stuff, but I don't have to, you know, I didn't, it wasn't this big scramble of like, oh no, I need to tell my team that I can't make these meetings or, oh, I had this deliverable that now I can't get done because I'm hanging out with a kid. So it's that kind of, I think the flexibility that I hope that I, I relish and, and enjoy in the coming months. Yeah, I can I can definitely see that. I mean, you know, when I'm out of town, like my wife owns her own business and it's a fitness studio. So like she's got things going on at the studio pretty much all week. So when I'm out of town for microconf, for example, it makes it a lot more difficult for her to kind of manage things. And then there's always stuff that comes up where somebody's going to have to deal with it. So the other day, you know, one of our kids fell in the driveway literally just before school. So like that's got to be dealt with as well. And it's, you can't just say, oh, well, I'll, I'll deal with it this afternoon. Like you got to deal with it at that point and push other things around in order to work through whatever the issue is. But, uh, you know, I can see how like two people having their own business in the same household is actually really, really hard. Totally. Two businesses and kids. Right. All of that. There's just too many unknowns and there's too many surprises and there's too many, you know, schools get canceled because of snow or some other thing. They have a problem with buses or one kid gets sick or there's just always see or parent teacher conference. There's always something going on that is screwing with your schedule and your focus. And that's why the general advice on kids is to get a fish instead. <laughs> yeah, fish instead. Indeed. How about you? What's going on this week? 
Well, now that MicroConf is kind of winding down, I'm starting to ramp up the marketing efforts for BlueTick again, and I don't have to worry about things for MicroConf kind of interjecting into that. Although, you know, things with uh, MicroConf Europe are going to probably interfere a little bit moving forward, but I don't think that it's going to be nearly as bad as uh, with MicroConf in Vegas, just because there were the two conferences and the sheer number of speakers that we had to work with. But there's, there's just a lot less going on, I think, just because it's only one conference. But with uh, marketing efforts, like I'm starting to get into the point where I'm focusing on doing things like webinars and the onboarding emails are getting better. There's a few product updates that are going to go out that are going to make things a lot easier for customers to do what they need to do in the app and guide them through it a little bit better. Because right now, I, I typically do onboarding for people manually, which is helpful, but it's not necessarily scalable. And then there's all this low-hanging fruit that I still have not done yet because there were pieces of the app that I knew had issues, and most of those have been cleared up. But I was waiting until after MicroConf was over in order to do the big marketing push again. So there's been a couple of times in the past where I felt like things were ready to start pushing on the marketing and then I start to go down that path and then find something wrong. So I'm hoping that that doesn't happen again, but we'll see how that works out. You know, nothing goes as planned, but I feel reasonably confident again. On my end, uh, I found a couple new podcasts I wanted to mention that are in the the bootstrapped software space or the product space. And I, I stumbled upon them because I have a Google alert for MicroConf. And so if you review MicroConf on your podcast, I will tend to listen to at least that episode. And uh, it just so happened that that there were a handful of, of podcasts that mentioned it, one of which I already listened to. But I wanted to call them out here and, and kind of announce them for folks who are looking for other folks like us. You know, it's the micropreneur, startups to the rest of us, MicroConf crowd. And and who are talking about the the things the things that we're doing. First one is called Hooked on Products, and this is from Phil Dirksen and, and John Turner. You, you know, Phil and I have known each other from from Fresno for years, and then John Turner is the co-founder of SeedProd. He's been on the, the on the podcast. And the next one is Build Your SaaS. It's Justin Jackson's podcast. He co-hosts with his co-founder of Transistor.fm, and then of course uh, the Art of Product which is Derek Reimer, my co-founder's podcast with uh, Ben Orenstein. So we will um, link those up in the show notes, Hooked on Products, Build Your SaaS and Art of Product. But definitely, if you're looking for some new kind of some new podcasts along these lines, I think those are, those are the, the early 2018 winners at this point. So we have listener questions. Our first set of questions is a couple, it looks like three questions in the same email. It's from Michael Paltion. And he says, I have a couple questions. The first is, I'm working on a SaaS app in server management slash scaling. I have a large LinkedIn network and have started posting the progress of the development on a weekly basis. I know Rob did something similar with Derek when he was building Drip. But I feel like the posts or the content only stay on LinkedIn. What's your view on posting the same content on possibly multiple channels, like Medium, a blog, or maybe even a podcast versus focusing on LinkedIn? I think the danger in focusing on just one place to post them, like LinkedIn, is that that stuff doesn't tend to work its way out into other areas. So by posting it on your blog and on Medium and on LinkedIn, then you start to cast a wider net. But I think that I would also be careful of posting them all on the exact same day if you space them out. So let's say that you post an article on LinkedIn, and then the next week you post the same article on Medium, and then the next week after that you post the same article on your blog that's going to cast a bit of a wider net because then you're reaching, not only are you reaching more people in different channels, but you're spacing it out such that you're probably going to catch the people who would have caught it on LinkedIn, on your blog, or on Medium in other ways. So there's going to be some overlap between them, but by spacing them out a little bit, you you get the advantage of kind of getting in front of people more 
more than once, but uh, you know, you're going to have to look into what's going to be an appropriate schedule for that. And I don't know off the top of my head what that would be. It, uh, obviously, it depends on a lot of different factors, but that's how I would think of it. I, I don't think I would just say, oh, just post it here, unless you have a newsletter or something like that where you're telling them flat out, we're going to be posting exclusive stuff and it's only going to be on our blog, for example, and you're only going to get it if you're on this newsletter. If you're going to do that, do not post, also post it in other places because then you're essentially lying to the people who are signing up for your mailing list and they're not going to appreciate it. Yeah, this is a this is a tough one. I mean, I think syndicating to multiple platforms tends to be a good idea. I, the only, uh, you know, back in the day, it was the duplicate penalty, duplicate content penalty from Google. And, you know, I know that kind of exists and in, in these days and Google will pick a, a canonical version, but it's this balance, right, of like trying to, to digital share crop on other people's land, which is the LinkedIn or Medium, or build your own following on a blog. And these days, it's just so hard to do it on your own and to try to get people to come read it because you just have to, you have to get those traffic sources and it's harder to share and all these things. So I would probably lean towards doing both that if you do have some something long form to put it on your blog post it on LinkedIn and link back. You can say this was originally published on blank and link, link back to your blog. You could do the same thing on Medium. The thing that I wonder is whether it's going to help at all, like whether you're going to notice it. And that's something to test. When we did this with Drip, at a certain point, we were building the blog up. Then we switched to where we were posting first on Medium just to try to see if we could gain critical mass there. We never did. So then we switched back to doing both. And it was fine. The fact posting to both was not a big time investment. And so we kept doing it and it had a nominal return, but it was not some mind-blowing growth engine or anything like that. And I think you'd either really need to discover a clever hack or perhaps that time has passed for, for things like, you know, the medium and the kind of the LinkedIn. It's like you got to get in early and get traction and be an early person and get a lot of followers and you can do it. So I question whether this is worth, you should try it for 60 days and just see what happens. But I question if it's going to move the needle at all. And then in terms of maybe doing a podcast, to me, that's a, kind of a different question altogether. Um, it's like, because if you're going to write it and put it out, that's one thing. If you're planning on just reading them on a podcast, you could certainly try it. Hopefully it'll be interesting. But like podcasting is such a different, a different game than blogging that I, I don't know. I, I think there's, there's a whole different question you want to ask yourself is, can I make this entertaining? It, you know, will people want to listen to it and that kind of thing versus writing one of articles, people will just, just stumble upon it. Michael's second question is, I've been thinking about starting my own podcast for some time, but I like shows with two hosts. My question is, how would you go about finding a co-host for a podcast? I don't think I've heard you guys, how you guys met and decided to start the podcast. It would also be interesting to hear that as well. Oh, do you want me to take that one? <laughs> yeah, I think we both know the story. Sure. Yeah, kick it up. Yeah, so the the way Rob and I met was back in 2005. I had left the startup company that I was working for called Pedestal Software, went off on my own. And I think, Rob, you've talked a little bit about how you were doing independent consulting around that time. And working from home alone is kind of isolating. And back in those days, there were not very many blogs and there were no communities for people who were a single founder working out of their living room or their kitchen or their basement. And so I looked around and the closest I ever found was the Joel on Software blog. And, you know, obviously, like a lot of people were reading that, but I looked at that and said, well, I would like to blog about my own experiences. So I started doing that and I was looking around for people who were doing the same thing. And I came across Rob's blog and I didn't realize it at the time, but Rob was also 
doing the same exact thing and had come across my blog. So we were peripherally aware of each other, but didn't know each other, knew who we were. And I think fast forward a little bit and Rob was iterating through a bunch of different products. And one of them he sold, it was selling from his blog. And I looked at it and said, hey, I'd be interested in buying that. So we got it in a conversation. I bought it from Rob. And then I think it was for the next year or so, you and I traded blog posts back and forth before we posted them, just because we weren't real comfortable blogging on our own yet. And just went through like an iterative editing process. And then once we got comfortable, we just kind of went our separate ways. And that was around 2007, I think. And then fast forward a couple of years, you had started the Micropreneur Academy. And that was based on building a course around all the stuff that you had you know, learned. And you were just basically busy. You were too busy to kind of churn out all of the content with it. And you look through your Rolodex and I, sh I showed up on the short list somehow and we got to talking and worked something out. And I basically joined you as the co-founder of the Micropreneur Academy. So that was 2009, 2010. We started the podcast. Um, is that right? I think so. 2010 podcast and 2011 microconf. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how things worked out. So I don't know if there's a good lesson there in terms of finding a co-host for the podcast, but there was, I would say, at least some level of familiarity there between us from like editing each other's blog posts and stuff before we got onto the podcast. I don't think that you need that. I don't think you need to go into a business relationship with somebody before that part, but you have to at least be able to get along and know that I think that your general values and ethos are kind of aligned. So yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of our story. Like Rob, look, are there any specific lessons that you can think of for that? Well, I mean, he's asking, how would you go about finding a co-host? And I'm wondering, do you really want to start your own or do you want to find a podcast for the single host and try to get on an existing one? Um, I know, you know, Jordan Gall and Brian Castle did this, right? Brian had the podcast Bootstrap Web first, and then Jordan joined him later and it made the podcast a lot better. And I think you could consider doing that. If someone else is already doing it and they're delivering and they're, you know, you get a little bit of an advantage of, of coming on late, that's probably what the first thing I would consider. The other thing is if you're starting it to talk about fun stuff like entrepreneurship or or hobbies or whatever then just just go ahead and do it and start it and you'll you'll find people if you're starting to you know around your business and you really want it to be the super professional thing up front then yeah I do think you need to spend more time kind of thinking about the the concept and and looking around. I mean, there are podcasting forums, there are podcasts about podcasting and those that have communities and I think probably getting that that intersection of people who listen to those podcasts and listen to startups for the rest of us or go to microconf or something like i guess if you're going to talk about bootstrapping then that's that's going to be it you have to find that venn diagram the intersection of someone who's interested in the topic and able to talk about it and also wanting to do it in a podcast form because it's it is no small commitment to do this you know ask any anybody who podcasts it is there's an amount of time that you have to set aside and an amount of discipline that you have to have podcasting is different than blogging where if you blog once a month nobody really cares you know it's fine hey it's a good article and it got up on hacker news or product hunt or whatever if you podcast once a month you might as well not it re unless you're some you know what is it dan is it dan carlin's hardcore history which is four hour thing that's that's an exception but for the most part you need to ship fairly frequently so it is a commitment from the start that i would say if, if you don't think you can keep that up you know not waste your time yeah, I think the commitment is something that people overlook and you really have to have an episode at least every week in order to start building an audience. I mean, I remember back when we started uh, Startups for the Rest of Us, we were doing it every week and then we decided, well, let's change this up and let's do every other week. So we did every other week for three or four months and it was very obvious that the growth slowed down. 
And then once we went back to every week, it went right back up again. So you have to be mindful of that. And I know that there's articles all over the place that say how many times you should post and, you know, how many times you should create a new podcast and how often, like how long they should be and all these different things. And it really boils down to a function of how much time and effort you have and what it is that you're going to do with it. Like, what's your goal for that? So, yeah, there's just a lot of different factors is all. Cool. And his third question, he says, it'd be great if you guys could do another rundown of the podcast you listen to or recommend. And I'm going to table that one for now, because maybe in the next few episodes, we'll do that. I'd like to revisit. It changes so frequently with me that I think it'd be worth doing. And he asks, you know, what equipment and recording devices do you use? Many of the great podcasts that I used to listen to are no longer publishing new episodes as often. And I'm also not sure why this happens to most podcasts. And that's exactly what we were just saying is because it just takes time. And if you don't get, if you don't have some type of something that you get out of it, whether it's a personal brand or whether you're selling conference tickets or whether you're promoting an application where you're getting some type of feedback loop, it is too much work to justify just doing a podcast for the sake of doing a podcast. So that's, that's why I'm sure a lot of these fail as they just figure the ROI is, you know, isn't there given the amount of work there is. But aside from that, what equipment and recording devices do we use, Mike? What complex, intricate <laughs> systems do we? Are you mocking me? <laughs> uh, well, but we, we're mocking ourselves. We use, we, use, we use USB headsets and we have for 10 years, you know, and I know sometimes now when I listen to the podcast, I hear as the, the plastic on the headsets jangling around because we don't, I've tried the Yeti and I've tried the Snowball. Uh, what is it? The yeah, the blue Yeti and the snowball. And I don't, I don't like the sound quality nearly as much uh, in the finished product as these, these Plantronics DSP digital signal processing headsets. I'm not going to name the exact model because they're discontinued. And whenever they come up on eBay, I buy them. And so I have about eight or 10 in a drawer in my house because I, I burn through them because they, they break, right? The mute button stops working. They get too too janky. The cords stopped working. So I've, I've probably gone through five or six in the past 10 years. And I have another stock in this drawer here that, that Sherry and I share. But what I would say is if you're going to do this, you can totally, you can get the, the Yeti or the Snowball. Those are the recommended ones. You just have to have sound baffling. You have to have a very quiet environment. It picks up, you know, if you have kids five rooms away, it will totally pick that up. If you want to do the USB headset where you can move your head around a lot, go for, well, definitely go USB and don't go kind of the, the audio, you know, auxiliary in and then test several out. I mean, that's, that's what I did. I bought six or eight of them at the start and tested them all out. And I, it was a noticeable difference in the, uh, in the sound quality. And just some general advice when looking for headsets, you probably want something that's relatively light. You don't want something that's massive and bulky. And you definitely want something that has a boom or a microphone that is stable and is going to sit in front of your face. Because as Rob just said, the problems with the like the Blue Yeti and microphones like that is you really have to be speaking directly at them and hold your head at about the same distance the entire time. And it can be really uncomfortable, especially if you're the type of person that fidgets. Like I know Rob likes to tend to walk around sometimes when he's podcast and I sit at my desk, but I also look around the room. So I'm not always looking in the same direction and that screws with the, the sound quality. And I think that's what most podcasters who are, I'll say much more visible about what equipment they use. They talk about these things, oh, the sound quality for this and that. And, and like the USB headset works fine. I mean, it doesn't matter that much. So you don't have to go all out on all of this equipment. I think that uh, the USB headsets that we use, I think they cost like 40 or 50 bucks. It's not very expensive. I have seen versions of the ones that you are not willing to talk about or disclose like two or three 
$300 at this point because they're much newer versions. But I, I mean, I use one right now that I can find for $60 or so. And it's a newer, it's a slightly different version than you use, but it, it works fantastic. Yep. And again, that's plan. I mean, Plantronics headsets, right? And, and, it's not the super lightweight one. You want the one with kind of the bigger, the bigger mic with the the pop filter and all that. And several of them will work for you. I don't think you have to get so detailed and know exactly you know which models or whatever we're using. Yep. And then we used to use what was it? Uh, we used to record over Skype and use either Call Recorder or Pamela. Pamela was on Windows that so would hook into Skype, and then Call Recorders on the Mac, and it worked reasonably well. But the problem is that it recorded both sides. So if your connection dropped through Skype or it was not a great connection, which happens frequently and feels like it happens more and more frequently these days with Skype, then you're you may end up recording the podcast again. I, I've had po entire podcasts where we've had to dump it. Not with ours, but with other people's where Skype just dropped everything and there's nothing you can do at that point. So we use a service called Zencaster right now. So it's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and it records the audio on both sides through the browser and there's no additional software needed. It's just you hop on it, records, records on both sides, uploads, and I have it sent into Dropbox. So it works out well. Yeah, I think the switch to Zencaster was definitely a good move for us, a lot less headache. Skype is, man, I just, I don't go into Skype at all anymore. I do all my meetings through Zoom and then recordings through Zencaster. And when someone asks to Skype me now, I'm like, oh, groan, I get to figure out how to make a call because I don't even, they redo the interface every four months and you don't even know how to do it. It's, it's kind of a mess. Your response should be, do you still have a yellow corded phone? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so thanks for the questions, Michael. I hope uh, our answers were helpful. Next question is from Alex, and he says, Hello, I am interested in creating my own e-commerce website that will host new entrepreneurs' products on my site for a subscription fee. Ideally, this will be for those who want cheaper advertising and not at the level of having their products on Amazon yet. My niche is American businesses, and my goal is the support of small business. I'm still working out all the details as this is a new business platform, but I'd love to hear some feedback. What do you think, Mike? I'm not sure what he's selling. I think like this is, is a it, tough one. He's trying to sell. He's trying to set up a website that can host e-commerce, like physical products for people who don't want to put their products on Amazon yet or aren't at the level. And I, I just don't know of any product that's like that. You know what I mean? Like it's a, it's a theoretical of like they want cheaper advertising, but who, have, you, have you run into anyone? you know, in your life who fits this bill. No. Yeah. And I haven't either. And so that's, that's the first thing I would do, Alex. I think, I think this is a good, it's good that you asked. First thing I would do is you need to go out and find 10, 20, 30 people who have this exact need, because I don't believe that there are that many people. And if there are, and they're not at the level where they want to have their products on Amazon, which is not a very high bar, I'm guessing that they're not going to have enough money to want to pay a subscription fee to host it on your site. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, I think, a classic case of saying, oh, well, it's too expensive for me, so so it must be too expensive for other people. And you're trying to squeeze blood from a stone at that point. Like, it's just not, it's not a good business model. I, I recognize the and, and empathize with the, the desire to help the people who have no money, but you can't do it by charging them. Like, you have to go up market, charge people who do have money, and then turn around and use that to invest in products and services and things like that that can help the people 
people at the bottom. I mean, that's why, honestly, like that's one of the things that we've done with the scholarship program this year with MicroConf is we went, like we got MicroConf to a certain point and it was growing and scaled up and we've got enough people there now that it's like, okay, well, how can we help those people at the bottom who could use that help to get up to our level? How do you bring other people up? And to do that, you need money. Well, you can't charge the people who don't have money money. They, it's not going to work. Yep. I'm glad you asked the question because I'm guessing that, you know, if you don't go out and validate this, you can spend a lot of time either building it or hiring someone to build it or whatever. And the first step that I would do is just figure out if this is viable at all, because I think I think red flags are going up for both you and I about the idea, at least the way that, that he's described it here. All right. Our next set of questions are from Linton Yi, and he is with jimulabs.com. He says, thanks for another tremendously useful microconf. As I mentioned to Mike, I started building a course right after last year's 2017 microconf. I've been trying to follow the formulas I learned at the conference, and I'm seeing some good signs. I'd really appreciate it if you could help me with some questions. Background. The product is a video course built for UI designers teaching them React, which is a JavaScript framework. The goal is not to convert them into developers, but to help them work with developers more efficiently. As of now, I have 1,300 subscribers in my list, assuming that's an email list. I'm still building the course, but there are around 30 people who have bought the first module for 79 bucks or pre-ordered the entire bundle at 169 about two-thirds pre-ordered the whole thing. About one-tenth of all subscribers replied to my quick question email. So he has a decent amount of engagement. The majority of my subscribers came from a few posts on Designer News, which is like Hacker News for Designers. The post brought almost 800 subscribers last May and June, but the growth of the list has slowed down since then. I'm also doing blogging and guest blogging. I didn't do much SEO intentionally, but many told me that they found the site by Googling. I've attached a chart of the history of my list with explanation of key events. Let me know if you need more data. And he has a, a bar graph for us. So he has questions for us. Looks like maybe three or four. He says, does this product feel like something that will work? That's an interesting way to phrase that. I'm not sure what work means. It depends on your goals, right? Do I think you're going to sell copies of it? Absolutely. Do I think you're going to make six figures from it? No. The list is is too small. And I would probably think about... And it's not too small. The list is too small to make six figures from it, is what I'm going to say. And you got to start somewhere, right? And so if you haven't engaged with these subscribers, and that's the part I don't know, um, I would be keeping them warm. And then I would be taking other other approaches that are probably free marketing at this point. I mean, if, if you watch the talk this year from Adam that we talked about, uh, Adam Wathen, that we talked about in the last episode, that was kind of the blueprint of how to do this. It's a lot of social media stuff, and it's a lot of getting into that that community and having reach in there. I was going to mention that as well. So he talked to me about this product because he attended Growth Edition and Adam had spoken at Starter Edition. And Adam's talk, go over to the MicroConf recap website and look up Adam Wathen's talk. There's all the notes there from that Christian Jenko took. And there's a lot of detail there that you won't get the full context of the talk, but there's a lot of stuff there that you'll be able to take away. And I think that that'll really help you figure out how to make certain things work and how to scale them up. But obviously, like with your, your question, there's a lot of it depends in there. Like how how far do you want to take this? How much time do you have to dedicate to it? Do you want to grow into this massive business or do you just want to kind of keep it small and put something out there that you can use as, I don't want to say a resume builder, but something to point at and say, hey, I've done this, so I have experience in this area. It depends on what the purpose of it is. If it's, a, if it's to build a business, then yeah, you could probably make it into a business. But as Rob said, not with just 1,300 subscribers. That's a great start, but you need to find other channels. And I think as he had mentioned in this email, that most of those came from a Hacker News 
post. So you need to find what those other channels are and whether that's, you know, Twitter or Facebook or, or doing paid ads. I think the difficult position you're in is one, the product is not finished and two you've already pre-sold some of it and pre-selling an unfinished product especially with tears is something that adam had actually advised against you know what's interesting is we're, we're kind of talking about this list of 1300 people and that's a great start and and can you make five grand from this or six or seven grand from that list yeah i think so if they're engaged i don't think that's an issue at all but this is not anything that's that's going to replace your income so it does depend you know on your on your goals his next question is that his priority right now is to finish the course or should i work on growing the list at the same time most people have told me that it'd be better to spend half of my time on both i i agree with that if you are just hammering the course out and not doing any list growth I I feel like you should be partitioning your time, I guess, because keeping that list warm and keeping it growing is how you're going to build this business. If you go through fits and starts where you're going to try to grow the list for six months and then you're going to build a course for four months and you're going to stop building the list, uh, unless you're at critical mass where you do have that 10, 20, 30,000 person list, that's when you can start thinking about backing off, you know, growing it. Do you agree with that, Mike, or what do you think? No, I totally agree. But I, I think that there's a, a little tactic that you can throw in there where as you're building the, the course and as you're finishing it, you can take little snippets of that and post it on social media in order to help augment your existing list. So whether that is, you know, specific posts on Twitter or on Facebook, or you put something out on Medium that says, hey, I'm working on this and this is what I've learned so far. Educating people about how to do something and talking about the struggles that you're going through as you're going through that process, that has a tendency to resonate with a lot of people. And it's not to say that everyone who joins your list is going to become a customer, but if they're interested in the stuff that you're te teaching, not just the process, but the content itself, those people will eventually turn into customers. And it also gives you the ability to take those things and email them out to your existing list and say, hey, just an inside view of what this looks like and where it's at. And that will help keep the list warm as well. Because the last thing you want to do is spend 80, 90, or even 100% of your time just finishing the product. And then four months from now, you haven't sent a single email to your list and you drop an email on them and says, hey, this thing is, out, is now available, please buy it. And you and I have seen people do that for like SaaS applications and software. And it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because they're like, oh, I had totally forgotten you even existed. And they're not excited about it. Right. His next question is, what else could I do to grow my list? Blogging and a free email course seems to work okay, but it takes a lot of time to create the content. I've seen others using ads. What do you recommend? My thoughts on this are the way that you typically do this is through social media, through blogging, through podcasting, through getting out there and doing a bunch of free marketing. That's because most people don't have a ton of money to spend in the early days. If you have money and you're interested in running ads and that's something that excites you, then go run ads. You know, go run ads on Facebook or buy ads on Designer News he talked about, sponsor email newsletters and, and test that stuff. That stuff was always fun for me, right? I'm some type of twisted individual that I enjoyed paying to see if I could get a sustainable flywheel. Other people hate that. And if that is their business, they don't want to do it. So you look at someone, you know, you look at it like how have Robin Mike built their list? How has Justin Jackson built his list through being out there and, and recording a podcast every week. And Justin Jackson, what does he have? Three podcasts? 20, 27 podcasts? Like he's got a bunch. So that's how he built his list. And it took him a few years, but it's figuring out 
what it is that interests you that you think you can do, you know, long term and that you're actually going to going to double down on. So do I think ads could work? I absolutely do. But you have to ask yourself, is that something that that you're interested in doing? I know Brennan Dunn started with ebooks and courses and and kind of blogging and, and tweeting, right? So it's a big social media thing. And then he got it to the point where it's making enough money. And it was, he knew that for every person that gets on his list, he gets X dollars back. So then he started running ads and he doesn't even need to be that good at running the ads because he has such a high kind of LTV on his, um, on list subscribers. So you could take that approach too. You build up the social following, you build up the brand, and then later you run ads, you could do ads from the start. I think any of these will work. It's a question of what am I really excited to do and to get up every morning and do. And if it's like, I love the blogging and the rush of trying to get to the top of Hacker News and Product Hunt and Designer News, then go all in on that and and blog three times a week. If you prefer to, to podcast, then go all in on that. And if you prefer to do ads, like I was saying, which some some people get more, more excitement out of, certainly I, I think you could invest time in that. His next question is, is it realistic to have a goal of 10,000 subscribers in the next year? And he says he's spoken to some people who have 5,000 subscribers. All of them have been writing and building their list for three to five years. Have you seen anyone who is able to grow a high quality list quickly? Uh, this is a hard question because it, it depends so much on what you do. Like, is it possible? Absolutely. Depends so much on the things that you do. I mean, these people who've been writing and building their list for three to five years, what tactics and techniques have they done? Have they systemized it? Have they created processes that are things that are repeatable and scalable and can be done without their input and toggling the different switches? Because if you're relying on a process that depends on you doing something every single week, it's less likely that you're going to do it. It's not to say that it's impossible, and there's definitely people who do it. I mean, we pump out this podcast every single week, almost without fail at this point. But, you know, it takes time and commitment. And do you have the commitment to do whatever, you know, to toggle that switch or pull that lever every single week? And if you don't, it's not going to happen. And therefore, it's going to get pushed out. I mean, it's honestly like in, in a way it ties back to email follow-ups. Like with that's why I built BlueTick because like I don't have the mental capacity to sit there and write all those follow-up emails every single time. And it's just because it's hard to do. It's hard to make yourself do it if you don't want to. So you need to find those things that you're going to be able to do on a, a repeated basis or to automate in such a way that you don't need to be directly involved in it. And it's still going to create Rob's flywheel effect. Yeah. And so, yes, 10,000 subscribers in a year, absolutely possible. I have, I've known many people that do this. It's not easy. And it's not just going to happen just by throwing things out. I mean, you have to be deliberate about it. You got to be focused. You got to ship either some type of content or some type of thing on a really recurring basis. Product launches also help if you do a big product launch. It will help you build the list. Uh, joint ventures would be a huge one, right? If you find anyone else that you could promote their product, they could promote your product. That is going to build the list because even if people don't buy your product, they you know will sign up to to hear from you about future stuff that you're doing, doing a podcast tour. I mean, there's there there are a lot of ways to do this. And if you really focus, yes, I think you can do it. I think building up 5,000 subscribers in three to five years sounds like a, a nice even keel side business pace where it's like, yeah, I'm going to blog about this this week. And then I'm going to write about some, which is fine. But it's not if you're really aggressive about this, and you want to get to 10k, I, I think you can absolutely do it. So thanks for the question, Linton. I hope our answers were helpful. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from our Out of Control by Moot. It's used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.